In the famous battle against Amalek who ambushed the Jews as they left Egypt, Moshe went onto the mountain and raised his hands in prayer, and that's what gave us literally the upper hand. But the Torah does tell us at one point Moshe's arms became heavy. Question is why, and the way that Rashi explains it, may be misconstrued to believe that Moshe did something that was inappropriate. It's just relative to who Moshe is and the standards that Hashem expects of him, and a lesson for us, the standards that are expected of us in terms of our care for our fellow Jews. At the end of our parasha, when it describes the battle against Rashi quotes the words that Moshe's arms became heavy and he had to be supported. On his mafar, she explains why did Moshe's arms become heavy. Because he was tardy in his fulfillment of the mitzvah to go out and battle against Amalek. How so? Because he appointed somebody else, Yehoshua, to actually lead the battle. Therefore, his arms became heavy. Okay, so what's Rashi telling us? The Pirish Bozeb Pashtus is the simplest way to understand would be this. Rashi Rashi wants to explain to us, even though the language used in the Torah over here is present tense, Moshe had heavy arms, which may give you the impression that he's an older man and therefore it's difficult for him to hold his hands up. You might have thought that this was a chronic condition that Moshe battled at the time due to his advanced age being over 80. Rashi wants to be clear. That's not Moshe. Moshe, we know, was healthy right till his last day. The reason his hands were heavy over here was because of a specific cause, which is because he was not as enthusiastic about the mitzvah as would have been expected from Moshe Rabbeinu. In that case, we really have to understand what does this mean? It's in fact not the first time in the Torah where we have seen a, an accusation against Moshe from the Ebishter that he wasn't as enthusiastic about a mitzvah as he should have been, surely Moshe would have taken precautions thereafter. In Parashat Shmois, if in Pasuk. Remember in Parashat Shmois, the Pasuk told us that Moshe stops at an inn on his way to Mitzrayim and the Ebishter sends a malach in the form of a snake that's about to kill him. Rashi explains why was there a, 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 an attempt on Moshe's life because he had not given a bris to his son Eliezer, and because he had shown tardiness with that mitzvah, he was, so to speak, uh, uh, you know, given the, the, the punishment, God forbid, of death. To which Rabbi Yossi says, God forbid, you can't suggest that Moshe Rabbeinu was in any way uh, disinterested or apathetic about doing a mitzvah. But rather, he made a whole, as Rashi explains, calculation that it's dangerous to give a bris while you're on the way and he doesn't want to delay his mission to go take the Jews out of Mitzrayim, so therefore he delayed the bris. Now, so Rashi has now brought us two opinions. One which is simple Moshe was out of line, so to speak, and therefore uh, deserving. And the other opinion says, Moshe had a very good reason for what he did. That second explanation Rashi doesn't say is like Medrash or something like that. In other words, he doesn't allude to the fact that that explanation is maybe not exactly the simplest understanding of the Pasuk. So because Rashi doesn't do that, So therefore Rashi is obviously showing us that in our simplest understanding of the Pasuk, we must, re- uh, 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 we must reach a conclusion that Moshe is not tardy in doing a mitzvah. If that's true, if in that case, Rashi was so convinced that it's impossible that Moshe was less than enthusiastic in doing a mitzvah, how come over here is Rashi quite comfortable to say that Moshe was 
slow in performing the mitzvah or uh, tardy in performing the mitzvah. On his and that there was a consequence, his arms became heavy. And here Rashi doesn't bring us a second opinion to say no, Moshe had a good intention or a good motivation for what he did. So how come in Parashat Shmois does Rashi say the Pshat defends Moshe and not here? Nochmer. In fact, if you think about it logically, even if you just stuck with the first opinion Rashi quoted in Shmois, which is that Moshe didn't do the right thing by delaying the bris of Eliezer. Moshe now had experience. He had faced consequences for having delayed a mitzvah. So moving to it is really clearly understood. As from then on, is Moshe given zoyer as by him zon nit zayin chas v'shalom kenyum from Israelus b'mitzvah. You can be sure that Moshe was vigilant never to be in that situation ever again to be somehow slow or tardy in doing a mitzvah. And via zoyus door Rashi and Forish as this is given by Moshe and inyum from Israelus b'mitzvah. So how possibly is it then here in this case that Rashi tells us Moshe was sluggish in doing a mitzvah? How is that possible? So we're going to try to look at two Midrashic sources. Maybe that will help us understand what went on over here. Give us an alternative explanation. We're going to look at two different explanations that are offered as to why uh, Moshe Rabbeinu's arms became heavy. First, you have Targum Yonason. In Targum Yonason state, When you have a look at how Moshe addressed the troops, he told them, tomorrow we're going to go to war against Amalek. And the Targum Yonason says, that was slow. And he didn't enthusiastically go to war that self same day. Therefore, his arms became heavy. Or, alternatively, there's another explanation that is brought in the Psikta and other places that actually had nothing to do with Moshe's behavior at all. But because we know that just before the attack of Amalek, the Jewish people have said, is Hashem really with us? So because of their behavior and their Questioning and doubting Hashem, therefore Moshe's arms became heavy. Now, does this actually bring Nitem Ershantan, I'll call Panamal's Pirusheni? We can quickly dismiss Rabbi Yonason ben Ozil's opinion in Rashi's take on the Pasuk. And, and it makes sense why Rashi wouldn't have quoted it. Even though it's also another version of tardiness about doing a mitzvah, the delaying of the, of the war till the next day. Oh, but then time is it mistavim shomikra, but that doesn't really fit the simplest understanding of the Pasuk, which is what Rashi is dedicated to, as There's nothing in the simple version of the story that indicates that the reason the battle was the next day was because Moshe was in some way sluggish. In fact, it makes perfect sense. They needed to get the army together, so they needed a bit of time. What isn't clear is, Why doesn't Rashi bring at least as a second version? Maybe the reason that Moshe's arms became tired was not because he had done anything wrong, but because the Yidden had shown a lack of faith. And that would fit with what Rashi did in Parashat Shmois to try and avoid making any aspersions uh, against um, Moshe that, that he's in some way not enthusiastic about doing a mitzvah. And you know why it would work perfectly in our Pasuk? Because the fact that the Jews showed a lack of faith of here is no surprise to us. We know it. Rashi told it to us earlier in a quite an elaborate commentary where he says, where Rashi gives us this whole marshal, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And, and he says, the only reason Amalek attacked the Jews in the first place was because they exhibited doubt 
in, in Hashem. So it wouldn't be a surprise for Rashi now to tell us that the reason Moshe's arms are weak is because of the doubt that the Jewish people showed. And that would excuse Moshe from in any way behaving in a way that's unbecoming to Moshe. Surely Rashi should have brought at least as the second view that the reason Moshe's arms are tired is because of the behavior of the Jewish people. It's something that Torah has already touched on. In fact, that's a far preferential explanation than to say that Moshe was not as committed or enthusiastic as he should have been. Now, now, if we know a little bit about, about Moshe Rabbeinu, even though Rashi generally doesn't rely on information that we're going to know from later on in the Torah, but we know this information. So if we know anything about Moshe Rabbeinu, it doesn't really make sense to say that in the battle against Amalek, Moshe Rabbeinu dragged his feet. Why not? Because in Parashat Pinchas, if them, was Moshe had gebeten Hashem, in Parashat Pinchas, where Moshe approaches David to ask him for a succession plan, the type of leader that he wants to take his place has to be Ishal or Edasha Yetzel One of the prerequisites is he has to be a man who leads the people. What does it mean, leads the people? Yetzel, he goes out in front of the people. It's Rashi Mefarish. Rashi is the one who tells us. We don't want a leader like the leaders of non Jewish nations who sit in the security and comfort of their palace while they send their soldiers to the front. To, to die for the cause. But Moshe says, we need a leader who's going to behave as I behaved, which is, I personally led the battles against Sichon and Oig. In other words, as for Moshe is given Klor, it's very clear to Moshe how a Jewish leader behaves. If there's a battle for the Jews to fight, the Jewish leader has to be part of, and in fact lead that battle. And Moshe doesn't speak about this in theory. He invokes a story of his own behavior, that he led the troops in battle against Sichon Even though this is where Moshe is 40 years older. So it's really strange. How is it possible that Moshe, who is the leader, and a 40-year junior leader by Melchemus Amalek at the time of the Battle of Amalek. Is this Atzel Moshe? Can we possibly suggest that Moshe was sluggish in going to lead the Jews into battle and therefore he was, he was censured? So the first point of clarity that we have in the whole story must be that whatever Moshe did that is at Moshe's level objectionable is not it's not misaligned with how a leader should behave. So a leader should lead into battle, but in the case of Amalek, there's a reason why Moshe thought otherwise. And that's why Moshe himself behaves differently here when dealing with Amalek as he did dealing with Sichon Voig. Now, what's the difference? We have to pay attention to the language that Rashi uses here versus the language that Rashi used about not giving Eliezer a brace when he discussed in a Prashashmois. So let's pay close attention to the language usage of Rashi over here. Because he uses language that is markedly different from the language he used in Pasha Shmois, describing Moshe's um, lack of doing the mitzvah of giving his son a bris. 
So the words sound very similar in English. Nisrashel, nisatel, people will use words like being sluggish or tardy or lazy. In a moment, the Rebbe will show us there's a massive difference between those two words. In Parashat Shmois, about the bris, the word is nisrashel. Here in Melchem Esamolek, the word is nisatel. Second of all, stam. In Parashat Shmois, all that, uh, uh, well, Rashi used a fairly generic term where he said Moshe was nisrashel. Or Bepirushay Da, whereas here he's much more specific and he says, Shenis Atzel Be Mitzvah, that he was tardy in regards to this mitzvah. Now, the entire understanding of what's going on over here hinges on these two key words. First of all, let's understand the chilek zwischen Rashlonus und Atzlus is. What's the difference between Rashlonus and Atzlus, which you and I might both refer to as things like laziness? Rashlonus means allgemeiner Obgelosenkeit. Rashlonus describes a persona. It describes an overall attitude, a, 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 an apathetic attitude. Was is going as was, which as a result of that attitude, people defer or delay doing things that they meant to do. So nisrashel means the entire outlook and behavior of a person overall leads to a particular result. Whereas atzlonus is the word atzlonus or atzel refers to a person's sluggishness with regards to a specific requirement. Ton, gain, For example, a person's too atzel to go do what they have to do, to get out of bed in the morning. They could be a very driven person the rest of the day, but in this context, they're an atzlon. Of a male felt as this is which means they're not showing the appropriate enthusiasm that is suited to that particular responsibility. Now Rashi tells us it's not just to say that Moshe was some kind of an apathetic or sluggish or lazy personality. It's in the context of the mitzvah, meaning when we analyze the specific mitzvah being described and discussed in this pasuk, in context, Moshe's behavior could be termed atzlus in context. Let's understand the birboze. The sibbos Moshe's nikigangin and the mechama is. Let's first understand what was going through Moshe's mind that pushed him not to be part of the war. The simplest understanding is It's not, God forbid, because Moshe was in any way generically or specifically lazy or tardy. The only reason Moshe didn't enter the battlefield is because he was sure that he's not suited to be there. An 80-year-old on a battlefield does not make sense. And not just on the battlefield. To be the leader of the forces and to lead the battle, that is Matim should surely be handed to people who are in the Torah mandated age range for soldiers. Which the Torah defines as somebody between the age of 20 and 60. So Moshe looks in the Torah and says, who's the right person to lead the battle? Somebody in that age range. I'm beyond that age range. I don't belong there. Not only that. You might say, hang on, but Moshe is the leader. He's the one who did all of the great miracles, some of which required human strength. Like, for example, one example, throwing the ash into the air to become the plague of boils, Rashi says, clearly needed superhuman strength. And Moshe is the one who did it. So why is he afraid now to be strong enough to lead the troops into battle? Nachman. 
In the Mechomim Mitzichem Vaoigus Meshabena Alengegangen Bereish Funti Anshatzava, and of course, later on in the battles against Sichon Vaoig, we know that Moshe does lead the battles. Arois Vaisnadik Vyongedait in Pirshashi, Oise Gevenleche Gevura, as Rashi there will describe that Moshe exhibited tremendous human physical strength. And there is not 80, he's almost 120 years old. So how come Moshe is not willing or ready to lead the troops over here? It's because the circumstances of the battle against Amalek are fundamentally different to the battle of Sichon and Oig. All of the great miracles that Moshe Rabbeinu did, facing off with Paroi, doing the, the plagues, hitting the rock, which is also one of those moments of superhuman strength, none of that was natural. It was all the Ebeshta doing miraculous things. That, of course, is exhibited in the, in the Ten Plagues. The Exodus, which is miraculous. Of course, the spring of the sea is tremendously miraculous. Even the way that the people ate and survived on a day-to-day basis was completely miraculous, thanks to the Mon and the Slav. These are miraculous heavenly foods that satisfied and, and nourished people in a, in a superhuman way. But all of that changes at this point in the story because when they reach Rafidim, where the Jews express doubt, is Hashem really with us? They just changed his approach. And now there were suddenly no longer clear open miracles. That metaphor we alluded to earlier that Rashi uses when he explains the story of Amalek. The fact that the Yidin complained, and then you have the attack of Amalek, those two are juxtaposed to tell us that they just saying, I'm always amongst you and I'm always ready to supply everything that you need. And you say, where's Hashem? And he gives the marshal of the father who's carrying the child on his shoulders. And then the child says, where's my father? And he says, okay, now you're going to see, I'll throw you to the ground and the dog's going to come and, and bite you. Part of the marshal that Rashi uses is the father throwing his child of him. So the Ebeshter at this point is not showing clear miracles. In fact, the only reason Amalek could be empowered to attack the Jewish people is because the Ebeshter is not in your face doing great miracles at this point in time. This is totally different to Sichan and Oit. All the time in Egypt, all splitting the sea. So because the Jewish nation are now in a different state to what they were previously, they're going through a phase where the Ebeshter is hiding and not showing miracles. So Moshe Rabbeinu analyzes the situation and says, we're not seeing outright miracles, therefore the battle we're about to fight cannot be conducted miraculously, it has to be conducted militarily, ordinarily. You've got to choose the right soldiers. And especially the right leaders of the soldiers. Part of the consideration must be soldiers who are at the right prime of their life, between 20 and 60, where they have the physical strength to win this war. And that's totally different to Sichon and Oig. 
the battles against Sichon and Oig were absolutely miraculous. As the Ebrister promised Moshe clearly, don't fear that great, powerful individual Sichon. About Oig, I'm sorry. He says, to, to, but don't, don't, don't be afraid of Oig, even though Oig maybe had some spiritual credits from having, having helped Avram Abinu and, and besides being a powerful person. Don't be afraid because I'm with you. And, and, and you're going to wipe him out and his people and his nation. You will do to him as you did to Sichon, which is to wipe him out. So if you're dealing with a kind of battle where Abish says, I'm going to hand your enemies into you, into your hands, you don't have to worry about how old the leaders are and if you have the right soldiers. You just got to go out and fight the war. But this battle against Amalek, Abish has pulled back in a sense and Moshe Rabbeinu has to run things according to the laws of war. Furthermore, the reason Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't go onto the battlefield is not because he's, he doesn't want to participate. To the contrary, it's because he can participate better from a distance, it would appear, right? He would think. It's not just that he's avoiding the battlefield because he's not the right person and you need the, the correct natural leaders. Because you've got to follow the rules of nature when you're fighting a war that doesn't have miracles backing you. So the logic says, Yoshua is a better suited military leader. He should lead, and Moshe shouldn't. That's not the only consideration here. There's also a positive reason why Moshe should not be in that war. Because this is a critical piece of information. If we're fighting a war in the absence of miracles, there are two critical parts to the battle. Aleph. Yes, the first thing is military strategy, that is, watertight. And for that you need the strongest, most uh, military-minded people possible. But that's not where Jewish war starts and ends. We also need the Ebeshter to help us to have the wherewithal to win the war. Because even at the simplest level of understanding what's going on in Torah, we know that even when things conduct themselves according to the rules of nature, we always need Abishta's help that the natural flow should work. And that's why I pay attention to what Rashi says when Moshe instructs Yeshua to select people. What kind of people? He gives two descriptions of those people relative to the two parts of a Jewish war. Giborim on the one hand, they've got to be physically mighty. And they have to be people who fear sin so that their spiritual credits will help them to be able to win the war. In the Mechilta, which is the source that Rashi is quoting, there are actually two different opinions. Rashi doesn't tell us the two opinions. Rashi says simply, there are two types of soldiers that have to be involved. Because if we're understanding the simple version of the story where you're fighting a natural war, a natural war requires a, 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 a supernatural element as well, not a miracle, but prayer. And therefore, you need strong warriors to fight the war. And you need people who are pious people in order that you have the Ebrishter's help. And that's exactly how the war against Amalek played out. They had a strong army. They had physical might. And the soldiers of that strong army were young, strong individuals. Led by Yehoshua, who is a younger individual than Moshe. But paralleled with that, you had to have the tefillah that they should succeed. 
that this natural battle process should in fact um, produce results. Who's the best person to lead the spiritual campaign of this war? Moshe Rabbeinu. Who could possibly be better? That's exactly what Moshe tells Yeshua. Choose people for us. We're both leading this war. You will go to the battlefield. And I'm going to go on top of the mountain and I'm going to have the special staff of Hashem in order to daven for your success. Moshe is highlighting both of the key aspects of the success of this war. To fear in the Melchama Befoel, how you actually conduct the war under Yehoshua's direction. And he gives Yehoshua that instruction, you go out and you fight against Amalek. And the prayer, Moshe says, I'll take care of that. What was Moshe Rabbeinu, what was the state Moshe Rabbeinu was in when he sat on top of the hill overlooking the battlefield? He was fasting. As Rashi tells us from the fact that it was Moshe accompanied by Aaron and Chur, Mikani says this is the origin of the principle that we learn that when there's a communal fast, three people have to be leading the davening. Says Rashi clearly, they were in a state of fasting because the Jews were fighting a battle. And his so called faithful hands that Moshe had extended towards the heaven were extended as supplication, as prayer. And that makes it absolutely clear why Moshe has a watertight case for himself not to be on the battlefront. If he's fasting, he's going to be obgeschwacht. He's going to be weak. It's not a time to go to fight a war. In fact, the halacha is that if there's a war, you don't fast because you need all the strength that you can have. And Also, by Moshe positioning himself on top of the hill with Hashem's special staff, extending his hands in prayer, that would be in a position that the rest of the nation could see him. And that would energize them and that would uh, support them in their war because they would know that, that, that Moshe Rabbeinu, the, the greatest person ever, is davening for their success. So it makes perfect sense why Moshe is not leading this particular war. Now, so what Moshe is proposing over here makes absolute sense. This is a natural war. Therefore, he should not be the head of the warriors. He should be the head of the people praying. Makes perfect sense. But it didn't work out exactly as Moshe perceived because Moshe's hands became heavy, indicating something's not right over here. Rashi says what happened over here is because Moshe Rabbeinu showed a lack of the appropriate enthusiasm to do this mitzvah and he appointed Yeshua on his behalf. Now, how could that be? Moshe has given a brilliant reason why he's not leading the war. So we have to remember, why are they going to war? Because Abishah says they should go to war. If Abishah says go to war, it's not for any individual, even as great as Moshe Rabbeinu, to start working out the best way to do things. He's got to go fight the war. I'm with Aftfilaton. Yes, Moshe has a good point. There has to be davening and very focused davening. And Moshe's devos is matim. Let's say the best candidate to daven is Moshe. 
He could have taken the special staff of Hashem with him onto the battlefield. And there, in the midst of the battlefield, he could have davened a short davening, similar to what Avram Avinu did when he went to rescue Lloyd. He fought the war himself, there's no question about it that he davened. We actually have precedent for this at the time of Kriyas Yamsuf. We know that the Jews were in a terribly stressful situation. The Egyptian army immediately behind them. And the sea blocking their way in front of them. At that point, Moshe Rabbeinu stops to them. And the Ebesha says to him, why are you shouting out to me? This is not a time for tefillah, this is a time for action. Move forward. But Rashi is in the forest. Rashi says clearly, They told him clearly, Now is not the time for lengthy prayers. Because the Jews are in distress. And therefore, yes, Moshe had the most incredible rationalization one not to actually be part of the physical war. And none of this was considerations for his own interest. But everything that Moshe Rabbeinu chose to do was for the benefit of the war effort. That he should fast and daven on top of the mountain, inspiring everybody else. And he didn't just abandon the soldiers, he appointed his proxy, Yehoshua would be his shriach, which is as good as him being there, in a sense. Under different circumstances, that would have been a 100% appropriate behavior for Moshe Rabbeinu. But because over here we're dealing with a story that Moshe didn't come up on his own with the idea that you've got to go to war, it's what David wanted. So in context, Moshe Rabbeinu's behavior is considered sluggish, not rushing headlong into the battle. Because if there's a mitzvah to do, there shouldn't be time to stop and work out where do we all belong. We should just run and do the mitzvah. We have to be ready and excited to do a mitzvah as soon as it appears. So because Moshe Rabbeinu slowed things down, Therefore, his arms felt heavy and, you know, kind of had to slide down. In other words, the part that he was contributing to the war suddenly became more difficult for him. Having his arms outstretched to daven to the Ebeshter, and he's unable to hold his arms up, indicating that his, because he didn't rush right in to do what had to be done to lead the war, Therefore, his participation in the war gets slowed down. We could take it a step further. Let's be clear. Moshe Rabbeinu would not have paused to do a whole calculation and a whole audit if the Ebesha had told him directly, go to war. But if you have a look... There actually is nowhere in the Pasuk where the Abisha says, go to war. We don't actually see that. There's no question. If the Abisha had told Moshe Rabbeinu directly, go to war, he would have. 
But because there's no outright instruction from Hashem. But this is Moshe Rabbeinu. We're talking about the ultimate shepherd and carer for the Jewish people who understood, obviously, that you have to go to war to protect the Jews from attack. If, God forbid, nations attack the Jewish people, we have to defend ourselves. In fact, we know at the end of the day that Amalek couldn't actually threaten the bulk of the Jewish people. It was only the stragglers who had somehow fallen behind the camp and were outside of the protective clouds. Doesn't matter. Moshe doesn't judge. He doesn't. He has no bias. He doesn't. He's no prejudice against those people who have fallen behind the camp. If there are Jews at risk, we go and save them. We actually Therefore, if this is Moshe's attitude, knowing as a leader that he has to always run and ensure that the Jewish people protect those who are being attacked, and it wasn't it wasn't a directive straight from Hashem saying, Thou shalt go to war. Therefore, Moshe was happy to conclude that we could do things in a way that you don't have to run headlong in as if it was an instruction from Hashem. So let's work out who should lead the war effort, who should lead the davening effort. But the Eibishter, who of course judges Moshe Rabbeinu at such a, an elevated level, considered this some sluggishness in the performance of the mitzvah. Because the attitude has to be that when the nations attack God for the Jewish people, we have to be aware of the fact that the mitzvah to protect Jewish people even before the Torah was given is the greatest of all mitzvahs. So we, we, we can't stop making and we can't start working out what's the best way to do it. Even if it's not a direct instruction from the Ebishter, if we have to help Yidin, we have to help Yidin without pause, without analysis, without meetings. And that teaches us an incredibly powerful lesson from the Pirashashis to Aironi Flo in Avedasada. We know very well that everything the Torah instructs is eternal for all times, all places. That might be true for everything the Torah speaks about, but the battle against Amalek, it's in a certain regard even more so. There are a couple of areas in which you see that the battle against Amalek is a very central part of the whole Jewish experience. Let's look at two, two perspectives. Aleph. The Torah tells us clearly that we have to write on record so we always remember the story of Amalek. 
Das heißt, dass die Ilöwe Meile von Azikoyen bechsav mit Zadembos de Kol Shekosu Batera Adobar Avenitzri. Once something is recorded in writing in the Torah, it has an eternal value. So everything that's written in the Torah has an eternal bearing and, and meaning. But here, where the Ebesh just tells us to write it into the Torah, so then it's much more so, much more of, a, of this eternal impact and bearing. And second of all, when the Ebesha talks about in our parasha about the uh, front and attack of Amalek and our recalling and response to that, it puts it into the context of something which is ongoing. It is a battle that the Ebesha has against Amalek throughout all of the generations. Therefore, its lesson must be extremely relevant in all generations. And this translates into a very practical application. We have a positive mitzvah from the Torah that we have to consistently remember the bad behavior, i.e. the attacks of Amalek. And that's why many opinions, including the way we do things in practice with the six remembrances, the sheish schiras, to remember the attacks of Amalek every single day. All of that helps us to understand from Debbie's movement not only is the battle against Amalek an eternal concept that applies in all times, but then the, the methodology, the strategy used in the battle is relevant at all times. How you fight against Amalek is an eternal, meaning a relevant personal message for all of us at all times. If it would be relevant at any time in history, it is especially so just before Moshiach comes, because just before Moshiach comes is where we have the responsibility to eradicate Amalek. The Targum Yonison translates our Pasuk in our parasha that says the battle of Hashem against Amalek is from generation to generation as Eina from the dry Klolistik Adarius from Mechis Amalek is Dora Deikvis of the Meshicha. He identifies that there are three main generations that have to tackle the eradication of Amalek, one of which is the generation before Mashiach. So what's the lesson? So in order to get to the lesson, we have to look at one more key factor of the story. And that key factor is why is it important for us to know that Moshe Rabbeinu suffered for being, so to speak, out of line at his level? Why does the Torah tell us his arms became heavy and therefore we know that he was sluggish? We know from Pashas Noyach that the Torah avoids speaking negatively even about a non-kosher animal. And the Torah certainly avoids speaking badly about humans. So especially Jewish people. The ultimate human. And then Gufa is move on to the fact that the, that the Torah shared this information with us, illustrates, because this detail is absolutely relevant to the ongoing message that applies to each one of us when we tackle our personal Amalek. Meaning as follows. Debrir as we've already seen, Amalek, the people who were vulnerable to Amalek, were people who had doubts in their faith in Hashem. Later on, the Torah recalls the story of Amalek, says who were attacked, those people who had struggled behind. Rashi says, who are the people who fell behind the camp? People who had become weakened 
because of their misbehavior, and therefore the protective cloud actually expelled them. Now, in other words, people who are outside of the pale of Judaism. But there were Jews who were inside the protective um, structure of the cloud, and Amalek couldn't touch them. And that gives us an incredible lesson across the span of the generations. The vast majority of Jewish people are within the safe confines of the Jewish community. They're involved in Torah mitzvahs. At least they have a relationship with the Abish. Yet they're the female mother, Matzavi, relative, of course, to each individual of where they're holding. And they're all in Torah mitzvahs, is making a film for Nala's Ruchai Zoros. And when a person is in the environment of Torah mitzvahs, to whatever extent, it protects them from inappropriate influences. Which come from outside of the realm of holiness. And if you're in the community, you're definitely protected from the apathy that uh, Amalek represents, who chilled people's enthusiasm for Judaism. But there are Jews who are outside the cloud, they're not part of the community. They are not currently living aligned with Torah values. And therefore, Amalek, who is very much associated with doubt, self-doubt, doubt in, in, in the Eibishter, can reach them. And cause them to have all kinds of doubts about what it is to be Jewish and to have a relationship with Hashem, etc. They start to doubt the Eibishter's capacity to control the world. They start to doubt the value of being involved in Torah mitzvahs. They become apathetic. So now you have the Jew who is inside the community thinking about that lost Jew outside of the community. What do I have to do with that Jew? person could say, that Jew has absolutely nothing to do with me. I'm in the community, I'm protected. That Jew has veered straight and, and, and it's not my problem. Those people who are inside the community they learn Torah and do mitzvahs to whatever extent. They're just not as good as they should be. Okay, fine, I'll engage with them, I'll learn more with them, I'll encourage them. Somebody who's a really simple Jew doesn't know too much. They're the woodchoppers and the water carriers. So, okay, I'm part of the leadership of the community. That's part of the simple element of the community. But you know what? I'm willing to step down from my pedestal and help that Jew to improve his situation because he is, after all, part of the community. So yes, it will be a step down, it will be a demotion for me to engage with these kinds of people, but we have to look after our own. <coughs> and these are people in the community we have to look after. But what do I have to do? With that Jew who's not part of the community, has nothing to do with the community, speaks out against the community. I don't want to have anything to do, I don't want to tarnish myself with that person. I'll say some tilim for him, I'll learn in his merit. Maybe Yareh of Murach Mimor and Debish will somehow inspire him. But you want me to go out onto the battlefield? You want me to leave the protective cloud of the shul of the yeshiva and find that Jew who's straight outside? 
in an environment that is not a place of fear of heaven. That's not my domain. It's going to only do with me. It's not for me. And of course, can you imagine the person says, I'm a full-time terrorist scholar. If he full does the is manazet to the extent that that is actually feasible in today's world, is ein svaren tamashlein nach gressen starker. Well, if I'm a full time Torah scholar, I had the strongest reason not to engage with that straggler Jew. I talk and some mafsek zayin from azal even in limud Torah. Somebody who's learning Torah at my level, it would be completely inappropriate, surely, for me to stop learning Torah to go look for that lost Jew. I raise against the div was that in mechutz leonon bechdei to megan zayin if zayin if zayin from the amoleks. I should be the one who's going to now go risk myself and give up on my Torah learning to protect that person who made themselves, who exposed themselves. I should go. And I should rescue them from Amalek. Stark and say in Zeramuna, I should be the one to bolster their faith. The white and say from Achet and Bavrik and say to Mekayim and Nocha Mitzvah, I should be the one to protect them from doing an Avera or get them to do another Mitzvah. If them hot min day rof and their Shemel Chama Baidin Ares gained from Mitzrayim Chama Samolek, therefore we have a lesson from the very first battle the Jewish people faced as they left Mitzrayim, which was the ambush of Amalek. That's a hero in them Alam, it gives us all a lesson. If Amalek starts up with a Jew, which Jew? The Jew who is distant, the Jew who is disassociated. He's outside of the clouds. Even if that Jew is in that place, by their choice. Because of their poor choices. It is our responsibility as the Jewish people inside the protected community to go out there and protect those Yidin from Amalek and his impact. In fact, who should really be leading this campaign to help protect Yidin from the wayward forces that are out there? Read Rashi. Those who themselves have Yerushalmayim, those who themselves fear sin, those ones who have the wherewithal to be able to help these Yidin against their, their challenges. And who leads us? Yehoshua. Who was Yehoshua that was sent to lead the army Against Amalek. He was somebody who was 24-7 learning Torah. And he had to relinquish his position as Torah to go be the leader, the general of the war. And the Torah is most of the as I feel Moshe was Melchama. The Torah goes further to say, look at Moshe Rabbeinu, who actually in the deepest sense was the one running and controlling the entire battle. He chose Yahushua as his representative to lead the physical battle. And he personally ran the spiritual end of the battle. Holding up his hands, praying till the day was over. As dem ganzen Togiv and Shor Betainis, he spent the entire day fasting. And his Gestanabi of the Prusis Hashemayim Bitfilan stood there with his arms stretched out in davening. And it was effective because as long as Moshe Rabbeinu was davening, the Jews did have the so-called upper hand. And despite and in addition to all of that, and there's still a criticism leveled against Moshe Rabbeinu because he should have physically gone himself and been hands-on in that battle. 
Um, which gives a lesson even to that person who is considered a leader in the Jewish world. It is insufficient to have a spiritual battle against Amalek in his generation. It's not good enough to daven and say some him that please God, lost Jews should find their way back home. No, even though it's, that's part of what a person also has to do, and who knows how high that impact will reach. In fact, it's not even sufficient for a Godel to elect a whole lot of emissaries to go out there and bring Eden back to Judaism. He has to get personally involved to engage Jews one-to-one to bring them back to Yiddishkeit. So if we take this approach, and we don't get caught up in all the rationalizations, even though they are holy rationalizations, like Moshe used, that will allow us to completely eradicate the memory of Amalek. So we go out doing what we have to do to eradicate Amalek, then we'll have the fulfillment of the Ebishtah's undertaking that he will eradicate Amalek, and that without any limits, without any restrictions, without any restraints, and that can speed us to the point that we get past the official dates that Mashiach is supposed to come bring the Geula now. And then, as Rashi says at the end of our parasha, when Mashiach comes, then the Abish's name will be fully manifested in this world, and the Abish's throne will be fully manifested in this world. And that should happen literally immediately.